Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Go. Mud. Sunscreen. Saliva. Vaseline. One of baseball's oldest junk pitches has survived rule changes, player accusations, and umpire searches to continue as a pitcher's secret weapon. Where did this doctored ball originate? Who threw it best? And what is the future for the spitball in today's MLB? The tale of the spitball, today on Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. I'm your host, Jeff Lambert. Well, here we are, everybody. Can't say I never keep my promises. This is the second episode in two weeks that I have produced and recorded and are going live to you now. So I said I was going four for four this month because I wanted to get back on track, catch up on some topics I was interested in, and turn out some new content for you and So far, I'm two for two, so we'll see if we can keep the good times rolling. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to remind you again, if you can do me the favor of leaving a rating for the podcast, either on iTunes or whatever podcast service you use, that would be amazing. It helps me get in front of new viewers, which is critical. I want as many people who enjoy baseball and baseball history as possible to be able to enjoy this podcast And just having a a high rating is a great way to be able to do that. So, yeah, leave a review. You don't have to type anything. You can just click the stars. If for some reason you want to give me less than two, just ignore this whole message. And uh, we'll just leave things the way they are. But that's really all I have to say for this episode. I want to jump right in and talk about the spitball. So let's get to it. Before we dive into the story and the history of the spitball, I want to take a moment to define terms, especially for those of you who are new to the sport or just learning about pitches in general. So what is a spitball? Well, if we take the standard definition, a spitball is an illegal baseball pitch in which the ball has been altered by some foreign substance. Some examples of foreign substances that have been used include saliva or petroleum jelly, but there are many others that we'll talk about later on in the episode. Now, why would a pitcher do this to the baseball? Well, this technique of throwing a spitter involves altering the wind resistance and the weight on one side of the ball. So by using a lubricant or making it wet on one side of the ball, that causes it to move in a very atypical manner once it's thrown. The ball will change direction rapidly 
which can include drops or curves as it makes its way to the catcher, thus making it harder to hit for the batter. Now, another benefit of the spitter is that it may also cause the ball to slip out of the pitcher's fingers without that usual spin that accompanies a pitch, thus making it harder for the batter to judge. Now, if you're looking for a more concrete example, a spitball, you can think of it kind of like a fastball that moves like a knuckleball. There are many names that a spitball has uh, grown to use over the years, and I just used one of them, but some, some common terms that refer to the spitball include the spitter. The spitball has also been called a mud ball, a shine ball, a super sinker, or a Vaseline ball. And there are many other terms that can be used to describe the spitter. Those are the main ones that usually pop up when we talk about this pitch. So now that we have our terms defined, let's talk about the rules surrounding this specific pitch today. Now, according to the MLB, in their rule book, specifically Rule 8.02, states that, quote, the pitcher shall not expectorate on the ball, either hand or glove. Now, what is the penalty for doing this? Currently, the penalty for breaking this rule and altering the ball in any way, whether using your hand or in your glove or anything else, it's a 10-game automatic suspension. Now, because of the rules around trying to make sure pitchers are not altering the ball in any way, and in this case, adding moisture to the ball, the MLB has even gotten so strict as to when players are allowed to lick their fingers when they're on the mound. Now, pitchers are allowed to lick their fingers as long as they're not on the pitching mound. And, in cases of cold weather games, when you get to October, both managers have to agree before their game, before the game starts of what the rules are specifically that are going to be allowed. As things such as, like, if they're going to blow into their hand to warm it up. That has to be kind of a mutually agreed upon thing before the game even starts. Now, that's where we are today in terms of the rules that surround trying to alter the ball, especially a spitball, adding moisture to it. But those rules have developed over time. Now, here's why the spitball became an illegal pitch and has become so tightly regulated by the MLB. So let's go back to the very beginning of the history of this pitch. So if we're going back to the origins of the spitball, it's important to talk about who the creator was for this pitch. Now, unfortunately, there isn't a consensus on who was responsible for creating the spitball. Well, we have two main sources that we can use to gather this information. And the first one is James Nyer, who is a baseball historian, and he wrote a book. And boy, this is a long title, so bear with me. The name of his work is The Nyer James Guide to Pitchers a historical compendium of pitching, pitchers, and pitches. Wow. Well, in that book, he stated that it remains unlikely that any one individual invented the spitball. We can also turn to MLB historian John Thorne on this topic, as he does have some things to say as well. He stated in an article, quote, Bobby Matthews was the first to throw the spitter. 
and the idea that you could alter the path of the ball late as it broke towards the batter was well understood. So Thorne's saying it was a pretty well-established concept early on in baseball's history that you could do this to the ball and get that effect. And he's referring to a guy named Bobby Matthews, who, by the way, played from 1871 to 1887. And this guy, in a six-year span, won over 300 games. But uh, on a sad note, he went insane at an early age, around 40, uh, and it was widely accepted that it was due to syphilis. So, the old curveball for the reckless journeyman strikes again. So, has anybody actually taken credit for inventing the spitter? Yes, there was. A gentleman named Frank Corridan, who played well after Bobby Matthews, publicly stated that he was responsible for inventing the pitch. Here's his claim. And before we get into that, Frank played in the MLB from 1904 to 1910, and he played for the Cardinals, the Cubs, and the Phillies. Now, he says that he came up with this pitch while he was playing for the Providence Grays of the International League. And his story goes that there were one, one game he was playing in, the ball landed in a puddle, and it was wet on one side. So he picked up the ball, and he threw it back, and it took an unexpected flight path when he threw it. So he says that gave him the idea for the spitter, and throughout the rest of his career, he would wet the ball during games. And he went on to have a respectable Major League career. He won lots of games, uh, was certainly a well-respected pitcher during his time. So he's one of the main people, at least, that has somewhat of a credible uh, claim on inventing the spitter, but there's no consensus on this. Who created it? Who knows? Now, one thing we can look at, if we don't know who the inventor of the spitter is, is who made it popular, because it did get very popular, especially early on in baseball's history, and it still to some extent is today. But let's take a look at some of the evangelists of the spitter. So we'll start off with Elmer Stricklett. Elmer learned this pitch in 1901, or so he says, while he was playing for the Sacramento Senators of the California League. Now, he openly said that he didn't invent the pitch, but he claimed that he was the first pitcher to master it. Now, he is on record, and the, the pitchers that he said he taught it to also credited it back to him. So, we do know that Elmer taught this pitch to pitchers Ed Walsh and Jack Chesbro, who both later went on to have very famous careers in the MLB, and were eventually elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So let's look at those two. So Elmer Stricklett really was the guy that taught it to some pitchers, and then some pitchers used it and got really famous, and spread it to people that they played with, and so on and so forth. So we have Elmer Stricklett, I guess, as, as uh, Agent Zero, I guess you could say, uh, Patient Zero. So let's look at Ed Walsh, one of his protégés. Ed Walsh played from 1906 to 1912, and there were several seasons where he was actually one of the best pitchers in the league. Unfortunately, injuries ended up shortening his career, but he had such a, su a successful run that he is a member of the MLB Hall of Fame. As a matter of fact, his career ERA is 1.82, and that's the lowest major league ERA ever posted. So I wasn't able to find any quotes from Walsh himself talking about how he used the spitter, but 
We do have an interview on file from a player that played during his time named Sam Crawford, and he referred to Walsh's use of this pitch in an interview. And this is what he had to say. He said, quote, Big Ed Walsh, great, big, strong, good-looking fella. He threw a spitball. I think that ball disintegrated on the way to the plate, and the catcher put it back together again when it got there. I swear, when it went past the plate, it was just the spit that went by. So high praise for the spitter that Ed Walsh used to throw. So he popularized the pitch. Obviously, it was very effective for him, and this created kind of a ripple effect for other pitchers wanting to learn how to use this and add it to their repertoire so they could also be successful. Now, as I mentioned, Elmer Stricklett, going back to patient zero, the guy that popularized the pitch, we said that he taught Ed Walsh, and he also taught a gentleman named Jack Chesbro. So let's look at Jack. Jack played from 1899 to 1909, and he played for the Pirates, the Red Sox, and a team called the New York Highlanders, which I think should definitely be brought back as a name for some team, because that's, that's an awesome team name. Anyways, now Jack Chesbro, like I mentioned, is a Hall of Famer. He actually holds the modern-era Major League historical single-season record for wins by a pitcher, which was 41 games, and he did that in 1901. He also holds the record for games started by a pitcher, 51 in one season. I can't imagine what his arm looked like uh, later on in life. And he also holds the the modern-era record for complete games pitched, which is 48 in a season. That's amazing. Now, there are chances that there were other pitchers that had higher numbers than this, but the way that the MLB measures these stats is they set the modern era record or or what the modern era started as as anything after 1901 or 1901 and later. So Chesbro does hold the record for those three uh, accomplishments. Doesn't mean that it wasn't done before that. And it certainly could have been, because you look at some of the crazy stats that players in the late 1800s put up. But in terms of modern era records, he holds that because it's 1901 or later. Now, Chesbro is on record saying things about uh, the spitter and how he used it. He says that he began using it in 1904, and he learned it from Elmer Strickland. But he said that he used it for four years, and then he swore it off in 1908, saying that he would never use it again and he wanted to go back to the old pitching style. So I guess he looked at it as a little bit of a method of cheating, which it actually becomes synonymous with as we move on through time. So we have Strickland, we have Chesbro, and we have Walsh. All three of these guys really helped popularize the spitball in the MLB. And this started a trend overall of other trick pitches working their way into professional baseball. And the early 1900s was just, it was littered with examples of players doctoring the ball. And remember, this is an era known as the dead ball era in baseball history. This was a time where offense was at an all-time low. I mean, there was just nothing in terms of home runs being hit. Averages were very low. It was a very defensive game that was based on pitching and, of course, defense. And we know that that all changed later on, especially through Babe Ruth, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a bit. And you can also go back to episode 18, which I talk about the evolution of the baseball, and I talk a little bit about how uh, even the changing of the structure inside the baseball was meant to encourage more offense uh, by the MLB. So, anyways, 
just a little plug for an earlier episode. But um, offensive players during the dead ball era, which is the early 1900s, they didn't like all these trick pitches that were popping up. And it started to lead to just lots of conversation about banning players being able to doctor the balls. Let me give you some examples of what players were doing during this time, in addition to the spitball. So one practice that pitchers started to do was they would uh, take chewing tobacco and they would spit on the baseball, or they would take mud from the mound or the field around them, and they would just rub it into the ball as they were working it before throwing it. And that would make the ball much browner and harder to track for hitters because you're going from a white ball to a darker ball, and as the sun starts to go down and it starts to get dimmer, it's really hard to track it because it blends in more with the surroundings. So that's one way that these uh, trick, trick balls or trick pitches were used. There was another popular method of creating what was known as the emery ball, and this became really popular right alongside the spitter. And basically it uses the same principle. You're trying to doctor or alter the way the pitch flows uh, as it makes its way to the catcher. So an emery ball was basically you would use some type of hard tool and you would deface one side of the ball to affect its flight. So two of the most popular things that players would use is they would use an emery board, you know, the, the little board that you use to file your nails, or they would take a piece of sandpaper and they would put it in their glove or put it on their thumb or something like that just to slowly work away one side of the ball to get that little extra advantage. As a matter of fact, Eddie uh, Chicote, I believe I'm saying that correctly, he was the right-hander who was really one of the, the main conspirators in the Black Sox scandal of 1919. He actually became famous for something that he used called the shine ball. And that was a move that required him, he would scoop a little special oil that was used to treat infields, and he would put it on the ball, which would create a shine on one side of the ball. And it would cause the light to hit it as it was moving towards the plate. And it would really confuse batters. Even the best hitters had a, a tough time hitting it. So, I mean, it was the Wild West during this time in terms of what players were able to do to the ball to get that extra edge. And there was really nothing that would happen to them if they got caught. It was kind of an accepted thing. The only penalty that was on the books for if you got caught was a $5 fine. And umpires rarely enforced it. So it's just, everybody's doing it. Now, in many cases, and this is another thing to keep in mind too, the pitcher didn't really even need to scuff the ball or doctor it in any way because there were only a few balls that were used each game. Balls were expensive and they were hard to come by. And so the rules basically said, you know, if, if the ball is affected in any way, it's going to remain in play even after it's been damaged or discolored, it would take basically the ball breaking in order for them to get another one. So that's the situation we find ourselves in in the early 1900s. So what changed? What caused the MLB to start looking at these doctored pitches like the spitter and wanting to get rid of them? Well, that all started around 1919 when a, a gentleman named Babe Ruth showed up and he change the game, and again, I talk about this more in depth in episode 18, by really popularizing offense, the home run, by getting crowds more excited about games uh, due to the hitting. And so what started to happen was we would see the MLB look for ways to give an edge to offenses as opposed to defenses. As a matter of fact, uh, Ty Cobb, 
the great Ty Cobb went on record saying that, quote, freak pitches were outlawed when the owners greedily sold out to home runs, end quote. So it seemed like it was uh, certainly not a secret that trick pitches were part of an effort to try and minimize uh, the lack of runs, the lack of offense in the game. So there was another event that happened that really forced the MLB's hand in terms of doing something about these trick pitches. And that happened in 1920, in August of 1920. There was a batter named Ray Chapman who was at the plate. And he was killed when a spitter, actually, struck him in the temple. And that spitball was thrown by a pitcher named Carl Mays. And it happened during a really poorly lit game. And the ball hit him in the temple at just the right place and ended up killing him. And so there was a public outcry for some change. The MLB certainly wanted to protect their players more. It was basically a public relations nightmare for the spitter because it was put, you know, public enemy number one for the trick pitches and the danger that it was putting the players in. So the MLB acted immediately, like immediately after Ray Chapman's death, to outlaw the spitball. So they did this in two parts. And and let me just preface this by saying the spitball was the main focus because of the fact that it was the most popular trick pitch being used during this time. Um, It doesn't mean that other pitches weren't included in this, but the spitball, like I said, was the poster boy. So the MLB passed two rules in 1920 to do something about this, beginning in 1920. In the winter of 1920, immediately after the season was over, they passed a rule that allowed each team to designate, at most, two pitchers who would be permitted to legally throw spitballs. So at most, you could have two players on your pitching staff that were allowed to throw spitballs, and that's it. They passed a second rule right before the 1921 season started, and it took an even harsher measure, uh, another step. They banned the spitball league-wide completely, except for any existing spitballers who were already in the league. So they basically said, no more spitballs. If you're already in the league and you throw the pitch, then we'll grandfather you in. So they were allowed to keep throwing the pitch under the previous rule that you couldn't have more than two, but the existing ones were allowed to pitch until they retired. And that was only 17 pitchers in 1921. So 17 guys were allowed to keep throwing it, Uh, No more than two on a team. But this created a situation for certain pitchers because, like I said, it was a popular pitch. And the minor leagues had a similar uh, list of grandfathered pitchers that were allowed to keep throwing it. But they couldn't move up to the MLB. And if that was their main pitch, they were done. They were trapped in the minors. They would have to play their whole career there because they wouldn't be able to find success on the next level. So the spitball completely outlawed by the MLB. Probably the guy that was hurt the most by this was there was a gentleman named Frank Schellenbach who was in the minors when this rule was passed, and he was an excellent pitcher during this time, but he couldn't move up from that point. So he finished his whole career in the minor leagues, and he was never able to move up to the next level. So the MLB took this step Uh, It's interesting to see that the Negro Leagues, which were enjoying uh, immense popularity during this time as a counterpart to the MLB, um, they did not outlaw the spitball officially. So that continued uh, in the other league, even though the MLB took that step. Now, not everybody went along with this rule change happily. Uh, As a matter of fact, there were some that spoke up. For instance, uh, Cleveland Indians pitcher Ed Kovaleski He was a dominating spitball pitcher during this time. 
he was one of the players that was grandfathered in. He said, quote, that pitch, the spitball, it kept me up there for 13 years and won me over 200 games. And I'm just going to pause for a second to give my apologies for the background noise. Apparently my neighbor is a basketball fan because he decided to do his weed whacking right during the recording of this. And I have a two-year-old and a full-time job, so I have to take this time where I can. So I will keep recording. I apologize for the background noise. I'm going to do my best to edit it out as much as possible. Such are the uh, not perks of living in uh, a crowded area. So anyways, back to the story. So Ed Kovaleski came out to criticize the steps that the MLB made. There was also a player named Burley Grimes, who had 34 wins prior to the 1920 season. He was very public about saying that this was a measure that didn't need to happen, that pitchers were good regardless of if they threw the spitball or not, if they were successful. And he thought that just outlawing the spitball was, like I said, just an excuse to hurt the pitchers and favor offense. So... To prove his point, the year after the ruling, during the 1921 season, he led the league in wins with 22, and he continued pitching for 14 more seasons, and he won a career total of 270 games. So he certainly was trying to make the case for, I'm a spitball pitcher, but it doesn't define me completely as a pitcher. So we had a little bit of blowback on this, but by 1934, so we're talking about you know a 13, 14-year span, there were no more spitball specialists in the major leagues. That was it. They had all played out their careers and retired. And like I said, nobody was able to move up from the minors to the MLB if they were spitball pitchers. So the spitballer was officially extinct. A footnote in the history books. Or were they? Would this practice remain alive? hidden from the watchful eyes of baseball's overlords, popping up every now and then as a secret weapon for pitchers to use against their foes? We'll talk about it after we come back from the seventh inning stretch. If you're enjoying the episode, please, please take a moment to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rounders Podcast. That's one word, Rounders Podcast. Mostly every day, we have photos, quotes, trivia, and other interesting stories from baseball's rich past. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through a service called Anchor. They have a secure payment option through Stripe a trusted name in online payments. So you can send me a donation safely and easily simply by going to anchor.fm forward slash rounders. For my current donors, I just want to take a moment and say thank you so much for your patronage. It means the world to me. Again, if you'd like to support, just go to anchor.fm forward slash rounders to donate. A link is available in the show notes. That's all for now. Let's get back to the show. And welcome back, everybody. So let's continue on in our story of the spitball. And, you know, I just want to say really quickly, you know, I don't want uh, there to be the impression that 
the ads at the beginning of the end of the show are in any way financially uh, solvent for me. I know I usually ask for donations during the show. That's really because that's the main driver for being able to make a little extra income with this as a side job, because that's really where uh, most of the income I get from the show comes from. See, in, in podcasting, when you have an ad, they use what's called CPM, which basically means plays per thousand. So, if I get an ad through Anchor, it might be $10 CPM. That means I get $10 for every thousand plays. So I'm not there yet. <laughs> but, you know, it, it brings in a little bit. But it, it's certainly not uh, the main way that I'm able to, you know, get some financial support through the show. So I didn't want anybody to think I was double dipping there. Um, your donations are obviously supported. If you feel so compelled, if the spirit moves, if the baseball gods move, it certainly helps me be able to make ends meet a little bit more. But I do this for the love of it. So if you're listening, please continue to listen. If you have the means and you want to give a little something back, the link's in the show notes. So enough about that plug. Let's get back to the show. All right. So we're up to the 1930s, 1934 to be exact. The spitballer is officially extinct. The MLB passed rules that outlawed the pitch. They grandfathered in the current pitchers that were already in the MLB, and all those players have come and gone. So, baseball's new rules completely outlaw doctored pitches, and that includes the spitball. So pitchers who wanted to throw the spitball had to get creative on how they could doctor it without getting caught. Now, there's a really great article from Grantland, and I'll include it in the show notes, that talks about the history of the spitball. And they stated that after the ban, quote, some pitchers grew to be known as artists, skilled practitioners who worked for years on mastering their tricky pitches and hiding their guilt. So let's take a look at some of those who continued, I guess you could say, the struggle to keep the spitball alive. First, let's go to a gentleman named Preacher Rowe. Great first name. He played in the MLB from 1938 to 1954, and he played for the Cardinals, the Pirates, and the Brooklyn Dodgers. And this guy was a good pitcher. He was a five-time All-Star, and he led the National League in strikeouts one year. But he was really famous for two things. His ability to throw the spitball with accuracy, and his ability to do it without getting caught. Now, Preacher didn't start using the spitball until later on in his career, and it was actually happened due to the fact, and this is by his own admission, after he suffered a fractured skull. <clears throat> he says he got the fractured skull because during the offseason, he would volunteer as a boys and girls basketball coach at the local high school. Well, during a game while he was coaching, he got into it with a referee over a call, and that referee punched him in the face, and when he fell down... His head hit the concrete and didn't meet it very well, and that gave him a fractured skull. And that affected his playing career from that point on, obviously. So he decided to start using the spitball to be able to gain back some of the physical prowess that he lost due to that injury. And he actually learned the spitball during his time in the minors, but he never used it up until that point. Now, he was known for using this pitch. Everybody kind of knew he was doing it, but nobody could pin him to the wall for it. To give an example of that, Stan Musel, the great Stan Musel, said about Preacher Rowe that he always tried to avoid getting two strikes when he was up at the plate because he knew that's when he would see the spitter from Preacher Rowe. 
His teammates called that pitch that he threw, the spitter, a beech nut curve, and they named it after Rowe's favorite brand of chewing gum. And chewing gum was a common way that pitchers were able to work up their saliva to be able to get it into the ball. They'd hold the glove up to their face, they'd spit on the ball, they'd work it in with their hands. So that was one way to do it. So Rowe had the beech nut curve, another term for a splitter. Now, when a hitter complained, in the rare occasions where this happened, where a, a hitter complained uh, that th- that preacher was throwing uh, a spitter, the umpire would ask for the ball, and Rowe would not be uh, accommodating about it. He would take the ball, and he would roll it on the ground back to the plate. Uh, if the umpire ordered his catcher to hand over the ball, the catcher would just drop it <laughs> and step on it to try and erase the evidence of the ball being doctored at all. So how did Rowe do it? Every pitcher has a technique because they had to get tricky about it after the rule changes. So the way that Rowe did this to get away with the spitball is he would reach up into his cap, the bill of his cap, and he would spit, uh, he would spit on his hand, excuse me, and then he would tug on his belt and transfer the moisture to his fingertips. So he would, he would touch his hat, spit in the meat of his hand, and then move his hand down to his belt to try and work the saliva onto his fingertips. Now, when opponents would catch on to him doing this, and this was smart, he would go through the same motions while he was doing the pitch, even if he wasn't spitting into his hand. And that would throw off the batters. They would expect a spitball, but they would get a regular fastball, which would screw up their timing. In an interview after he retired, Preacher fessed up to it officially, and he said, quote, I threw spitballs the whole time I was with the Dodgers, seven years in all. In another interview after he retired, when he was asked to explain his longevity in playing baseball, he said, quote, clean living in the spitball is the reason for my long career. And he actually described that article in a 1955 uh, profile by Sports Illustrated. And the name of that article was The Outlawed Spitball Was My Money Pitch. So Preacher was not shy after he retired about saying, yeah, I did this. And it wasn't a great kept secret either because, like I said, players knew he was doing it. It was just really hard to catch him. But he was successful at it. So there's one profile of a spitballer after the ban. Let's look at another one. And this is a familiar name, and many of you might not have known that he was a spitballer. But Whitey Ford, the great Whitey Ford from the New York Yankees. He played from 1950 to 1967. And just to go down his accolades briefly, he was a 10-time All-Star. He was a Cy Young Award winner, a six-time World Series champ, and of course, he's a Hall of Fame inductee. Now, Whitey admitted after his career was over that he would occasionally doctor pitches. And just like Preacher, he admitted that it happened later on in his career. He said in an interview, quote, I didn't begin cheating until late in my career, when I needed something to help me survive. I didn't cheat when I won the 25 games in 1961. I didn't want anybody to get any ideas and take my Cy Young Ward away. And I didn't cheat in 1963 when I won 24 games. Well, maybe a little. End quote. So, just like Preacher had a technique for being able to hide his ability to use the spitball, Whitey Ford also had a technique. So this is how he did it. And this, this is pretty genius, I have to say. His spitball, which was dubbed a mud ball by his teammates, was a full inside job by the New York Yankees teams that he played with. Like, everybody was in on it. And basically how they did it 
was Ford had worked out with the Yankee groundskeepers that they would wet down an area near the catcher's box. Then the Yankees catcher, whoever it was, after receiving a pitch, would pretend to lose their balance and they would crouch down. And while they were doing that, they would make sure the ball was in their hand and they would dip it in the mud, which quoted uh, it coated one side of the ball. And then they would pick it up and throw it back to Ford. So the ball came back to him loaded and ready to go. Now, Ford also doctored pitches in different ways, too, and he admitted to this. He admitted that he would use his, the diamond on his wedding ring to gouge the ball and create scuffs. Uh, he was eventually caught by an umpire doing that, and he was warned to stop. So he didn't do that as much as he did the spitball. But uh, Elston Howard, who was one of his favorite catchers on the Yankees, would also help him, and the catcher would wear a belt with a sharpened buckle uh, on the shin guard. Excuse me, not a, yeah, a belt around his shin guard, which was, was sharpened, and when he would catch the ball, he would reach down and scuff it up for Whitey and then throw it back. So uh, Whitey was uh, a little trickster himself, I guess you could say, in terms of what he threw. But I have to give extreme credit to the Yankees for <laughs> pulling that off because that was not a one-man job. That was at least a three-man job to get the spitter to work for Whitey Ford. So those are two players after the ban that continued throwing the spitter with success. Let's talk about another player, Don Drysdale. Drysdale played from 1956 to 1969. And he played for the Brooklyn and L.A. Dodgers, like after the move. He, he played for both cities, for the Dodgers. He was also very successful. He was a nine-time All-Star. He was a Cy Young Award winner. He won the World Series three times. And he was a Hall of Fame inductee. Now, for Drysdale, I couldn't find any quotes from him himself saying that he was a spitballer. But there were tons of secondary sources saying that he was well-known for throwing this pitch. But he did say one thing about the spitball that I could find. Even though he didn't admit to it, he did say, quote, The spitball is such a psychological thing between pitchers and hitters. Hitters are so psyched by it at times, end quote. So take that for what you will. Uh, but we do have Gene Motch, who was a longtime MLB player, and he was a teammate of Drysdale's. And he said, Drysdale's uh, spitters were the best because he throws it the hardest. So <laughs> we have his teammate kind of fessing up to it for him. We also have Bill White, who was a former MLB first baseman, and he had a 326 lifetime average against Drysdale. He could hit Drysdale. He said in an interview after he retired that, quote, I had such a high batting average against him because he threw spitballs. It actually was oil he kept in the back of his hair. And when you loaded the ball up, it sunk. And I was a low ball hitter. He was throwing to my strength, end quote. So there we have Drysdale on record as, as being a spitballer, at least from other individuals who played with him. Now, there is a player that is the most infamous for being uh, an alleged spitballer. I can't even say alleged because he pretty much admitted to it. And I'll get to that in a sec. And for my older fans listening, you know who this is if you're uh, a follower of these types of things. And that is none other than Gaylord Perry. Gaylord Perry played from 1962 to 1983. And he played for a lot of teams. He played for eight teams. The Giants, the Indians, the Rangers, the Padres, the Rangers, the Yankees, 
the Braves, the Mariners, and the Royals. And I just realized I said Rangers twice, and that's not because they're twice as good. That's a typo. But eight teams are overall he played for. And, you know, he was no slouch. He was an excellent player. He was a five-time All-Star. He was a two-time Cy Young Award winner. He led the league in wins three different times. He pitched a no-hitter, which was very rare during this time. And he's also, of course, a Hall of Fame inductee. Now, he has talked at length about the spitball. Uh, He was very coy about it during his playing career, which was part of his allure because it was always that, is he going to do it? Is he not going to do it? Did he just throw it? It really threw off fans and batters. But he claims that he was taught the spitball in 1964 by pitcher Bob Shaw. Now, that article from Grantland that I mentioned earlier that I'm going to include in the show notes, they stated that, quote, Perry was so successful throwing illegal pitches and so impossible to catch that after the 1973 season, baseball began granting much broader powers of judgment to umpires who suspected cheating. Now, as I mentioned, Perry was so good at, I guess, playing the trick of he throws the spitball, but when's he going to throw the spitball? That he would mess with batters when he was on the mound. So when he was, you know, before he went into his windup and he's got the ball and he's staring down the batter, he would touch the back of his neck or he would rub his finger across his eyebrows or in the crook of his arm or he would wipe his hand under his hat just to get that psychological advantage to make him wonder, like, is it coming or not? Is it coming or not? So one example of how much this annoyed the players, the hitters that faced Gaylord, Reggie Jackson, the great Reggie Jackson, he got so upset after striking out against Perry one time that Jackson got ejected from the game for arguing balls and strikes. And Jackson went into the dugout and he went down the tunnel, but he came back with a full, um, I want to say canteen, and I can't think of the word, full jug of Gatorade. And he turned the Gatorade over onto the field and splashed it all over the dirt. And he was yelling at the umpire the whole time that, well, Perry should be allowed to use Gatorade on the baseball because he can use everything else. So he really pissed off Reggie that time. Uh, so, yeah, players weren't weren't happy because they knew he threw it and, and he was good at it. He was a good pitcher. Another example of how well Perry used that psychological advantage of whether he was going to throw the spitter or not. There's a story that he shared that there was one time before a game against the Cincinnati Reds that he went to say hello to their bench. And he walked up to Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and Joe Morgan, and he'd go over and he'd shake their hand. But what he would do before he went over, he would rub his hand full of Vaseline. So when he shook their hands, it would be really slippery. And he'd say, I look forward to pitching against you tomorrow. And then he said, quote, and I left them thinking that all night and all the next day about that pitch, end quote. So even just to mess with their heads before the game, he would do that. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, Gene Tennis, who was a catcher uh, for Gaylord uh, while he was in the majors, when they were playing for the Padres, said, quote, I can remember a couple of occasions when I couldn't throw the ball back to Gaylord because it was so greasy that it slipped out of my hands. I had to walk to the mound and flip the ball back to him. Wow. <clears throat> Talk about a loaded baseball. So we have examples here, several examples, four to be exact, of pitchers that continued to use the spitball after it was banned from the MLB. So did the spitballer go extinct? In a way, yes, because it didn't, be, it didn't continue to be an overt pitch that could be used. It was regulated and it had to go underground. 
But pitchers who were very good at their craft continued to use this doctored pitch. So that brings us to the question, are there any modern-day examples of players continuing to use this technique? And the answer is yes. This is not just something for the history books. The spitter is alive and well running the underground revolution for doctored pitches. So let me give you some examples of that. In Game 2 of the 2006 World Series, which was between the Tigers and the Cardinals, TV cameras spotted a brown smudge on the thumb of Tigers pitcher Kenny Rogers, and it was on his throwing hand. So after umpires got together and talked about it, they ordered Rogers to clean his hand of the smudge, and Rogers' excuse was, he said, oh, it's a combination of dirt, some rosin, and some pine tar, but, you know, he complied and he cleaned it off of his thumb. And that must have fired him up, because in that same game, after the second inning, he went on to pitch eight scoreless innings, and Detroit pulled out game two. So there's one example in 2006. There was also something that happened in 2013, and this was between the Red Sox and the Blue Jays. Now, Red Sox pitcher Clay Buckles, who was at his high point in his career during this time, he was pitching a gem. Oh my goodness, he pitched a great game, and the Red Sox ended up beating the Jays 10-1. to Now, after the game... The Jays TV announcers, Jack Morris and Dirk Hayhurst, both said that their camera people came to them and said, oh, we have footage on tape that Buckles was loading the ball. Take a look. And they both said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Hayhurst went on Twitter immediately after the game, after seeing the video footage, and he said, oh, quote, forget the hair. I just saw a video of Buckles loading the ball with some Eddie Harris-worthy slickum painted up his left forearm. Wow. End quote. Now, Buckles didn't take this lying down. He immediate, immediately defended that he did not do this. He denied the charge vigorously. And John Farrell, his manager, also came to his defense and said Clay didn't do this. Now, what was his official excuse? Buckles went to the media and stated, quote, I get wet from my hair. Are they talking about the stains on my shirt? There probably are stains on my shirt because I've been wearing the same shirt for the last three years. End quote. Now, how did this resolve itself? The MLB didn't find any concluding evidence about it, but uh, Morris, one of the uh, telecasters, Jack Morris from the Blue Jays, actually came out later on and apologized for the uh, accusation that he made against Clay Buckles. So uh, leave that where it is. Buckles' career kind of went off a cliff uh, not long after this, but at the same time, um, he, did, he certainly um, pushed for his innocence, and there was that apology. So there's two examples in the past 20 years of the spitball being used. So it is still alive and well. It must be. So that brings us to our final question. What is the future of the spitball? Well, some have called for the pitch to be reinstated. Some big names. Joe Girardi, Warren Giles, Stan Musil, and Ted Williams all support the spitball being legalized again. Former American League president Joe Cronin stated in an interview, quote, There have been so many accusations, and rather than have pitchers live under a cloud of talk that they are cheating, I would like to bring the pitch back, end quote. As a matter of fact, during the home run glut of the 2000s, remember with Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and Paul Merrow and all those guys, several newspapers and magazines ran articles 
supporting bringing back the spitball because they said it would help restore balance between offense and pitching. So it is a conversation that's ongoing. And I don't think we've heard the last of the spitball. I mean, it may be disgusting from a hygienic point of view, but it's an interesting conversation on how rigid the MLB wants to be. Especially in today's taboo-obsessed society, could the spitball be the, the cool factor that could bring more publicity back to baseball? Kind of in the same way that the three-point shot helped popularize basketball, or the shootout helped the NHL in their ratings? Maybe a little bit of mystery and intrigue and, and a little trickery here and there might be good for baseball. I'll leave it to you to, to, to discuss, and I would certainly love your feedback. But that's it for this episode, ladies and gentlemen. We have reached the end of our journey talking about the spitball. Thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate every listen, every play. And remember, for the month of July, I'm continuing my goal of going four for four with weekly episodes. So send me some encouragement throughout the month. It helps. And of course, I always love hearing from you. Thanks for listening. And remember, there are only two seasons. Winter and baseball.